Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com and on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that is solving the talent crisis in the life sciences industry by democratizing access to the world's best expertise. I'm excited to welcome Yoki Slonum, co-founder and CEO of Anima Biotech. Thanks so much for joining us today, Yoki. Hello. So to start off, Yoki, we'd love to learn a bit about your interesting background and how you got to being the co-founder and CEO of Anima. That's a good question because I think that my background is not uh, the standard one. So I'm, I'll be happy actually to start with that and actually that connect to the very essence of Anima and what we're doing. And to cut a long story short, to jump to the end conclusion, I mean, we are a company that is a hybrid of a biology and a software company where the software is really using a lot of AI as well. And my background actually started from software. I was a software guy. I created three companies before co-founding Anima. The first one was a software company called Mercury Interactive that became the world leader in automated software testing. That company, we took it public after four years from its founding. It grew over the years to become the world leader in that with revenues of over $1 billion dollars. Eventually, it got acquired by HP for $4.5 billion, became the software division of HP. The thing with software that really attracted me from day one was actually not so much what software can do, but what happens when it doesn't do it, but in software. I was a hacker from very early days. I was programming computers, and when they crashed, nobody knew why. So Mercury was a software that automated the testing to find the bugs. But then I thought about it, and at the age of 17 came an idea to, to my head, which stayed with me for the time that I was in Mercury and actually afterwards. And that was about what is the root cause of those bugs, how to find why a software crashed or why it didn't work. And I had this idea that just like there is on the airplane, a black box flight recorder that records the flight when the airplane crashes, they go dig the black box, they find it, and they see what happens. So I thought about this and said, let's build a black box for software applications that will record everything that is happening all the time inside the application. When there is a problem, you go back in time, you see exactly what was the transaction, when it happened, what were all the variables inside, and you actually you know, understand what happened. But that idea actually waited in my head because after Mercury, I joined another company. I was uh, there, number two, a COO in that company. That company called Technomatics was an enterprise software company, sold big software of automation, of manufacturing processes to the automotive industry. Wasn't that interesting, but was a big experience in building big organizations, big companies. I managed an R&D organization of like 600 people there. We got the revenues of over 100 million. Again, that company was acquired by Siemens. And then I got back to the black box thing. I said, I have to do it. The internet was starting, you know, and then all the websites of Fidelity Investment, Amazon, e-commerce, banking, they were all starting, you know, and they were crashing. Nobody knew why. So today it's very obvious that you buy stocks and you see in your portfolio the stock. Then you could actually spend the money, but you don't see the stock, you know, in your portfolio. And everybody is starting to call support and what is happening, nobody knows. So I built that idea and that software was like recording everything that happened 
And when there was a problem, you could go back. To cut a long story short, that was a good idea for the time. And we grew revenues to almost $80 million within five years. And again, that company, I sold it to a big software maker called BMC for a couple hundred million. So I was very lucky as a software guy. And then I was introduced by my co-founder to biology. And this is where Anima starts. I was the first investor in Anima, actually. And actually, the company spent 10 years in the academic phase, which was not, you know, it means that the timing for investment was many years after what I did. But I got into biology. I started to learn, you know, to study biology. I did like 30 courses online in San Diego University, kind of trained myself in biology, decided this is what I'm going to do, and became the CEO of Anima full-time from 2015, where we launched the company out of the university to build it into what it is today. Just out of curiosity, as you've been rapidly educating yourself in biotech and drug development, curious if you've had a chance to reflect on what are some of the parallels between software development and drug development, just from your own mental model perspective? Perhaps you've noticed some similarities there. Well, I, I would say it will be a bit um, of a perspective that is not the traditional one, because as I said, I brought to Anima all these ideas that software could be used in drug discovery and that we could build a drug discovery platform that has an equal you know, part in software as in biology. So it's kind of we led the whole company all the time, almost as if it is a software company, a software product. We are building a platform that is a product. And it's very unnatural, you know, because usually biologists, they see it in the lab and they've got their protocols, but for the most part, they are not building a product. You know, a molecule is the eventual discovery. But when you think about the process of software development, it's usually very architected. You know, people have like, you know, software development management platforms. Biologists, they don't have that in that sense. They've got notebooks, you know, where they do the experiments. So we kind of managed the company from day one in a very different manner. We kind of brought all these, I would say, discipline of software development <laughs> into, you know, building a platform that has a lot of biology in it. And our platform actually has a user interface like a software product. So everybody is working in that platform. It's not just that the platform is a mental thing that discovers drugs. You know, when people do experiments, they use the software side of the platform to run it, and then the software analyzes it, and then the image analysis, then the AI, and everything is together, the process and the result. It's a kind of a different approach, I think, what we've got in Anima. Great. And so now let's talk about your perspective on perhaps AI-enabled R&D, where it is right now across the industry, and you know hopes and opportunities that you see given your vantage point, and then also perhaps coupling that with what you're seeing across the mRNA landscape right now too. Okay, so that's actually a big subject, a big subject. And actually, you mentioned two words, okay? And these are actually among the most interesting words right now for people around, I would say, drug discovery, less drug development, but drug discovery. And these are mRNA and AI, the two big waves. If you think right now about two big waves that almost everybody is talking about, these are the two words. I mean, there are other words, but these became kind of two words that are kind of, uh, you hear the average person on the street talking about that. You don't hear people talking about cell therapy. 
you know, or CRISPR, you know, for that matter. I mean, as exciting as it is to reprogram your DNA, it's amazing. I mean, this is crazy stuff. But for the most part, the average person knows nothing about it, okay? All of a sudden, mRNA became the number one word in biology. It used to be DNA, but it took 50 years for DNA, you know, and still many people are not sure what it is. And mRNA, all of a sudden, almost everybody knows it and in a good way because it's associated with something that is good. Aside from the people that think that Bill Gates is using, a, you know, putting chips in you with those vaccines, okay? Yeah, yeah. The AI thing, which is the other side, is an interesting, intriguing idea. Maybe a computer can invent a drug, you know? Let's look at those diseases. Let's analyze all this information. We don't know exactly how and why, but the computer will invent a drug. This is kind of something that was in the making, you know, and you see all kinds of uh, uses for AI, you know, and it gets exciting to think about diseases and can AI do something. But for the most part, I will make an important distinction for the sake of positioning back into anima and mRNA small molecule drugs. AI is indeed, for the most part, used today by companies that want to use the computer to invent a drug. And I'm saying invent and not discover, because many times those AIs are coming with drugs that nobody has been thinking about or being able to come with in the normal process of drug discovery, okay? Almost like an invention. And it could lead to dramatic, you know, invention. But at Anima, we were looking at something else. We use biology platform, screening platform, phenotypic screening platform, to discover mRNA small molecule drugs. But a big problem is, and maybe that this is what we should be talking next about this whole space and, you know, what are the approaches there for mRNA small molecule drugs. A big issue with discovery of molecules in that way of phenotypic screening is what is the mechanism of action? How do you actually understand what the things that are working, how are they working? And this is a huge issue for pharma, by the way, because if they don't know how it's working, they are very hesitant to partner with you. We've done some big partnerships because of that. So we use AI to discover not the drugs, but the mechanism of action of the drug. And that's like big picture when we, maybe we should be talking more about this space, you know, in general, and then I can expand on, on the specifics of that approach. Yeah, that sounds great. Let's go deeper there in terms of also just your approach for doing so, and then perhaps taking a step into the future and potential impact that that can have on the field overall. Maybe, you know, as a good framework to think about it, because really what Anima is doing is different from all the other companies in the space. So it's important to understand what the space is all about. Yeah. So really that space, which is called mRNA small molecule drugs or small molecule mRNA drugs, because the word mRNA drugs, you know, is kind of the two words get together. And then there are different varieties of those. So there is RNAi. RNAi is an mRNA biology type of drug. You inject them, you know, and they have all kinds of delivery problems. But the fundamental idea was very simple and actually was something that is not new, even though the drugs are relatively new, that's three or four years in the market, but it took 35 years to get there. The idea was, if we cannot really, you know, drug the protein itself, let's knock down the mRNA. It's an indirect strategy to get to the result of kind of the protein will not be made. 
The thing is that those drugs are like RNA by themselves. Think about the mRNA molecule. It's like a mirror, you know, image, so to speak. I'm simplifying it a great bit, but they kind of bind to the mRNA. Then the mRNA becomes degraded. It's not functional, and therefore the protein will not be made. Knock down the mRNA. By the way, that's a one-way street because if the disease is of lack of protein, there is no concept here. Like, what are you knocking down? You need more, you know? Then there are the vaccines of mRNA, and companies like Moderna, what they were all about is let's inject mRNA as a drug. Let's inject a synthetic mRNA into the cell, and the cells will make the protein, okay? So if there is a lack of protein, that's exactly the other side of it. You can grow protein in this way. It so happened that they actually turned to be using it for vaccines. But these are the two things that when pharma, when big pharma, you know, and I've been speaking to big pharma R&D, you know, guys, heads of R&D, and they said, we missed the mRNA train two times. One time was the RNAi, the second time was the mRNA vaccines, unless we are Pfizer or Moderna. But this one, this is the third train, mRNA drugs with small molecules. This is our train. This is our big business. This is our bread and butter. This train we're not going to miss. We want mRNA, you know, small molecule mRNA drug. Just give us a lead. Just give us something. We can optimize them. We can do everything with them. It's not like the RNAi that was so foreign to us. We didn't know, so we doubted it for so many years. Okay? So when you think about the space, there are three things. RNAi, mRNA vaccines, and then the small molecule. There are in the small molecule space right now about over a dozen companies. And you probably are wondering, what's the difference? What are these companies doing, right? It's a question that we hear all the time, you know, from pharmas and from investors. So the way that I'm thinking about it, and, and it's not an established, you know, framework, it's just my way of thinking about it, is that put it like an X and a Y axis type of matrix. On the X axis, put the approach, target-based approach or phenotypic screening. These are the two main approaches for drug discovery. And on the Y axis, ask what is the target? Like the first one is RNA molecule. There are companies that are targeting the RNA molecule, the small molecule. And then there are, for lack of other words to describe it, mRNA biology, other things around the mRNA. Now you start to populate all the companies into space into one of these quadrants, okay? On the left side, you will see all the target-based approaches, companies that target the RNA molecule. And then most of the activity actually recently, over the last year and a half, moved to the mRNA biology. You see companies that are targeting specific mechanisms of action, like splicing factors, like mRNA modifications, RNA-binding proteins, stuff like that. And Anima is actually the only company that, in a strange way, is standing out as the only company doing phenotypic screening in this space. Now, it's not that phenotypic screening is a new thing. I mean, people have been doing it, but Anima is the only one doing phenotypic screening to discover M small molecule mRNA drug. Now, this comes with... Huge benefits, but big challenges. The huge benefit is this, especially when you don't know what the target is. There are no established, validated targets yet. So you discover something that works right in the disease model, right in the biology of those cells. And you can come up with multiple chemistries, multiple molecules, and all of them are doing this. All of them are reducing you know, the mRNA or increasing the translation of the mRNA. And as a result of that, implying that the protein is decreased or increased. It's a two-way street, by the way. But then the big question is, what is the mechanism of action? So this is where Anima is actually answering that by all the images that come of the phenotypic screening in our system. They're not general, colorful images of cells. They are images of the mRNA translation and anything that happens to the mRNA. 
We are generating mRNA images. And then we use AI over those millions and millions of images to analyze them and to classify them and to decipher the mechanism of action of the drug. Now, you probably are asking yourself, how is that possible, right? It sounds like quite crazy. So let me give you an example that is easy to understand, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. Let's say that the molecule is somehow affecting the location of the mRNA in the cell. How is it doing that? Let's take neuroscience as an example. It will be easy to understand. Let's say that the proteins have to be translated in the synapse of the neurons. Otherwise, it will not do anything. So the mRNA has to be there. So there are proteins that are moving them there. And then the ribosomes jump on them and translate them. Imagine that the molecule is actually binding to one of these proteins who is relocalizing the mRNA and inhibiting it. As a result of that, the mRNA will not be located in the right place and translation will be decreased. So it's a mechanism of action related to mRNA relocalization. Now, proteins that are doing that are not all the 20,000 proteins. Maybe there are only 200 proteins that are associated with that function within cells. So it reduces the target space by two orders of magnitude. If you knew that this is what it does, you will have maybe 200 proteins to look for and check and not 20,000. So now you can see this in the image. That's the fascinating thing. If the mRNA has been moving, the image will show it. And an AI system that has been trained over millions of images like that, including some known drugs in the mix, will actually have millions of examples of that. And when it sees the image, it says, hey, I've seen this before. This is, has been relocalizing the mRNA. So I now suspect that the mRNA relocalization is a mechanism of action here. And this leads to a much narrower space of things that go back to the wet lab in biology to check. Does that make sense? Yeah, it certainly makes sense. And it seems like a very powerful approach. I'm curious how you brought some discipline to indication selection, given the potential power of this approach of leveraging AI for mechanism of action and elucidation rather than drug discovery. So actually, when you say discipline for indication selection, let me fill in the blank about what the biology part of the platform is doing, okay? Great. Because really, I said phenotypic screening, but and then I said images, images of mRNA. Really, the car technology of anima, if you go back to what we've done at the University of Pennsylvania, where the technology was developed and licensed to anima, where we actually spinned out the company in 2015 out of the university, it was a really crazy idea. The idea was that if you think about how proteins are made, I mean, they are all made in the same way by ribosomes. And these ribosomes, they are magicians of a single trick. What are they doing? They take two amino acids that are brought to them by tRNAs, and pair by pair, like this, they build the protein chain. So there is a repeatable event here, a pair of tRNAs sitting in the ribosome. Now, this is perhaps the most repeatable event in nature. You cannot find something that happens more frequently than that. Million ribosomes in trillion cells, each of them is doing this all the time. This is life. By the way, this is the machine that builds life. Building of protein is two tRNAs sitting in the ribosome. That's it. So we had this idea in the very early days. My co-founder came to me with this crazy idea, actually. And he said, I found a way to visualize this with light pulses. Let's label the tRNAs with fluorescent colors, red and green, transfect them into the cells. From time to time, the red and green will end up sitting in a ribosome, and then we'll see a light pulse coming out because of an effect called FRET, fluorescence resonance energy transfer. When the red and the green are sitting so close together, 
in the ribosome, a light pulse is jumping between the red and the green. It's called donor and acceptor. Actually, that's a concept that comes from quantum physics. Now, it was known in biology, but almost unused, because where are you going to find the conditions, you know, that they will be sitting next to each other for a long time like this? In the ribosome, it happens all the time. There is no problem to create a condition. So we went to the University of Pennsylvania because these guys had patents on labeling of tRNA. This is what they were doing. And we came to them with the idea. We said, let's label red and green and see light coming out of the ribosome. And we started to do that. It took many years. And along the way, we did 17 academic collaborations of using that technology and testing it and trying it out. And I remember that researcher that asked me one day, he said, but what are we going to see if we are going to put those tRNAs in the cell? And I didn't know what to say. And then I thought about it. I said, you are going to see the light. You know, that's what it is, <laughs> to see the light. They're seeing the light, you know, and publications started to come out where people were showing the light coming out of the protein translation, the protein that they were researching. Now you ask me about, about indications. One of these indications that is the most advanced in our pipeline is lung fibrosis. Why is that? The protein that is accumulating without control is collagen. And it accumulates in the lungs. And then it creates like a lung tissue that is non-functioning, like scar tissue. Collagen out of control. Now, in the very early days, we've done studies about collagen because collagen is actually a completely undruggable protein, not a target. Even if you could target it, what are you going to do to disintegrate, you know, degrade of the collagen in the body? There are kilograms. It's the most abundant protein in the human body in kilograms. So there is zero value to a strategy that is stopping collagen. But then we found something unbelievable, almost, that around mRNA biology, the processes there are super tissue selective, meaning the same mRNA, same mRNA, like collagen, that is in the lungs, in the liver, in the kidney, in the bones, in the skin, everywhere, the regulation of the translation of it is completely different between the different tissues. By the way, this is a huge advantage of the approach of going in this direction and not after the mRNA molecule. Imagine going after the mRNA molecule with small molecule mRNA drugs, you are going to have a risk of systemic side effects. If the mRNA is in multiple tissues, it's going to hit it everywhere. But it so happens that the regulation is tissue selective for so many proteins, and therefore our approach discovers molecules that are working in the lungs, but they're not working in the liver, the skin, the bones, kidney, anywhere else. Now, this is a paradigm shift. That's a game changer. It's a small molecule that is no longer an artillery. It's not hitting everywhere. It's like a guided molecular missile. It works only where you have disease. Even though the mRNA, you have it everywhere. Okay? So we were looking for indications where the value of the platform will be so evident and the target will be so high value and the approach will be so unique and it will be linked to the biology eventually. So you want to play with the biology on your side not against the biology and by luck somehow, you know, finding something it works, you don't know why. That's one thing. Or you know why, but you are lucky that it works. And there are so many other things. So this is the guidance that we have for indication selection. The other one is CIMIC in oncology, where we have, you know, like a very high value target and we are actually running, you know, and discovering compounds that are our compounds today, three programs already, three different chemistries, post-need optimization, entering preclinical and working in animal models, they are all selective to see me in that manner, not affecting healthy cells, only tumor cells, only tumors that are addicted to see me. By the way, coming back to the collagen, I forgot to say, the beauty of that architecture, that it's tissue selective, you can repeat it now in liver fibrosis, in kidney fibrosis, 
in the skin. And all of these will have molecules that work only in that tissue. These are collagen translation inhibitors that work in a tissue-selective manner. And the third area of the pipeline that we selected as a partnering engine for the company is Neuroscience. We've partnered with Lilly, we've partnered with Takeda around the Huntington program and other targets. And we view this as a partnering engine for the company because we come with very tangible assets that are early stage assets that work in the biology of the cells of the disease, multiple chemistries, and we explain how they work. That's super intriguing and attractive for a pharma because they say, it's a small molecule, we know it's working, we can proceed from here. It's de-risked in a certain manner for them to continue. Very different story if you don't know how it's working. Then it's just a molecule that does something itself, you know? Big, yeah, big, absolutely. big difference where the AI part, again, brings the huge differentiator. Great. And just out of curiosity, what was your approach when you were thinking about which assets to partner and as you were thinking about who you'd like to partner with as well? What was the framework you used? So I think that the way that we are looking at this, it's always a dilemma for companies to develop a pipeline and then to partner. It's again an X and Y axis. It's almost like two different efforts, two different companies. So you need to put, as you said, some discipline into it, some idea that guides you, okay? Now, many companies have no idea. They are just moving, moving, moving with their programs. All of a sudden, somebody comes and say, I want your program. Now the dilemma is in their face, you know? Are they selling the program or... But they don't have an area where they feel that they can generate assets, you know, that are kind of easy to partner. Let's call it this way. Now, what does it mean easy to partner? If you want to partner let's say, and do it not on the side. You want to do it on the front, but you don't want it to interfere. You have to understand one thing. You cannot build a sustainable partnering model on something that takes you four years to develop an asset because then you are too far down the line. You invested too much in it. If it's good, you have to move forward to actually extract all the value from it. If it's no good, you are going to fail along the way after investing maybe three years in it. So you need to build your partnering on things that are taking you a relatively short time to produce, but are already interesting for a partner to take. In the Huntington disease program of Anima, Anima invested only five quarters in the program, a year and a quarter. But we've generated 12 different molecules that work in the cells of Huntington you know, disease models. And they are all of them doing a magic. They were actually inhibiting the translation of the mutant hunting team protein, but they were not affecting the normal protein at all. Unlike RNAi, by the way, which would knock down both of them. Takeda was so excited by that, and they looked at it and say, it's working in the biology. You already can explain how it's working. You understand, and we could essentially move that from here, and we've got 12 of them. So we've got like so many de-risking factors here in this. So you could drive a very big deal from an early stage asset, and essentially the rest of the project with them is new targets. You convince them based on a target that they like, and the rest is new targets that they bring in. At the same time, we are moving forward for three and a half years now, the CIMIC programs and the fibrosis programs. And we produce more assets for partnering, like Alzheimer, we've got Tau, we've got in pain, NAV 1.7. These are things that we want to partner. That's the idea, to partner things that are produced quickly, at a low cost, but are very tangible and very valuable as early as they are. And you use that funding to move the company forward 
which is exactly what we've done. One thing about Anima that nobody figures out is that we don't have VCs on board. We literally bootstrapped that company. The last time that I raised money was almost four years ago from private investors in the very early days. Since then, we are building the company on deal. Now, over $100 million we, we used to build, you know, but it came into the company, not from investors, and we did it in a profitable way along the way. So it's kind of, you know, because of that strategy. You cannot do it if you burn all the money and then you even surrender the asset eventually. And there are companies in our space, I don't want to mention names, that actually have a lot of money right now in their bank account, but they kind of surrendered all their pipeline, you know, because of an unstructured approach to partnering. The dilemma was hitting them in the face. The money was there. They reset the old company backwards, you know, three years, and they restarted with an early discovery pipeline and a lot of money. We didn't do that. We have advanced programs. Actually, we are among the two most advanced programs in the mRNA small molecule space. I would say, I don't want to mention the other one, but they kind of did a crossover round just recently. So we are like in the same stage, 18 programs in the pipeline, two big partnerships and preclinical stage. So I think Anima is in the lead position, you know, in this space right now because of that. And you measure companies like that. I mean, the pipeline and the validation from the partnerships, these are the two parameters. Again, an X axis and Y axis, but how to manage it, you know, between the two is a big issue. I'm sitting on panels all the time where people are saying, how to do this, how to do this, you know, and what I said here is my answer. If you want a partner, find a partnering engine for your company, invest a little bit in the assets, but produce very unique assets and work on those on the partnering. Don't work on developing assets three years down the road and then partner them. That's not an engine. It's not a sustainable model to work with. And Yoki, you, you seem to have been you know, quite productive for a relatively small team in biotech these days. Given your background on the software side, you've come up with some very unique approaches for obviously a, a very different industry. I'm curious what the makeup of your team has looked like and how you've complemented your own skill sets with other folks around you. Think about this being a question or folks that might be interested would be folks that have, let's say, background in software, but are bio-curious. Okay, that's actually interesting. You said a small team. I would say that's also interesting to think about why teams become big, you know, in companies. And indeed, Anima has, maybe we will be, we are now like going to 90, maybe we'll be like 100 people in the first quarter of next year. And we built a heavy platform. When you think about it, the phenotypic screening is known for being requiring, you know, big teams, uh, multidisciplinary, you know, teams, um, a lot of heavy infrastructure to manage, automation, uh, image processing, uh, cloud computing. It, it sounds like you need many, many people here. So first, 90 people is not small. I think in our space, we are actually, you know, quite big, probably among the biggest teams out there. And it's about or maybe 60% biologies and 40% software. And the software and the automation is so substantial that actually it replaces many times, you know, people. So really, we are kind of replacing wet biology with imaging. So a lot of stuff that typically happens through experiments and assays in biology is actually done with imaging. So this is reducing even more. But to look at it from this perspective, we brought into the company people that are from multiple disciplines. I came from software. I brought with me people from multiple software companies that we had before. Uh, my VP of R&D is drug discovery, you know, world-class leader. And she brought and built, you know, all the team. We've got like 50 PhDs in the company. 
and they are biologists. We've got chemistry in-house, by the way. We are doing our own chemistry and med chem. So it's really multidisciplinary team. Now let's take this number 100 to put it in perspective to another company that have built the same infrastructure. Really, I can say the name is because they are a public company that are not competing with us, recursion. You are familiar with them because you like AI, right? Again, yes. the same idea, you know, the huge level of automation in this phenotypic screening coupled with AI image analysis. And the AI in their case is flagging and classifying differences in the images. In our case, the images are mRNA images, so we can go deeper and understand with the AI what is it doing, because it's, it's a limited scope of biology around mRNA mechanisms of action. So we use it to actually even go deeper and understand the mechanism of action. But that company was proudly saying in their prospectus for the IPO that they have 250 people. Okay, now you look at the pipeline, they've got like 40 programs, you know, and they raise tons of money along the way, and we bootstrap the company. So it's like two and a half less people, and we've done almost the same platform. Again, I think the reason is here that first it costs less. We built it in Israel. Now, we'll talk about, about it maybe later, but, you know, our team, the costs that we have are substantially lower. It's important. Okay, so we are not burning two and a half times cash, you know, or two times cash. Second, the level of automation is decreasing cost compared. I'm not talking about recursion, but any typical platform technology company doesn't have a lot of software. So really people, people, people. When you have software, all my career was about software replacing people. Automated software testing. What is it? Replacing the people that test software. Automated black box light recorders, replacing the people that hunt to understand what the bugs do. So I come with this mentality, you know. Every time that my biologists are saying, let's do this experiment, I go to the data scientists and say, can we do it in imaging? Let's get them out of a job, you know. So we got so many biologists out of a job in this manner. So it's very efficient, very efficient way to do things. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the Israeli biotech ecosystem as a follow-up to that now and what you're seeing from your vantage point for Israel, where you know companies are perhaps being built in not the Kendall Squares and the you know, San Francisco's of the world, but rather in more diversified locations and what you're hoping for the future of the Israeli biotech ecosystem looks like. This is a question that I was asking myself from the, almost the very beginning when I started Anima. I came from software, and software is an industry that flourished in Israel. It became like, you know, the second Silicon Valley, maybe even the first. I mean, this is, this is a place where today you've got infrastructure for software companies to grow and to go as far as you want. All the big venture capital funds are there. Private equity funds are there. Huge deals are done. Huge valuations. I mean, it's super easy today to start and to grow a software company in Israel. And the talent is coming from the best universities, and people are super dedicated and motivated. And there is this entrepreneurial environment and mentality and risk-taking. And they learned also over the years how to manage companies for growth, not only how to manage companies for invention, but for growth. And you see companies, you know, some Israeli companies that were, you know, that went public this year, last year, getting to revenues, you know, of hundreds of millions of dollars getting to valuations of $7 billion, reaching out to 150,000 customers. You know, that's global scale. Then I looked at the biotech, nothing. There are a couple of funds investing, you know, in low valuations in early stage companies. And 
none of the big VCs from Boston, from San Diego, from San, they are not there. Why? What's, what's the problem? Now, talent, you've got it, amazing talent coming from the Weizmann Institute, from universities, biologists, chemists, not so much, by the way. That's a real issue, by the way. Chemistry is a different thing. It's more like in the pharmas and, and you don't find them in Israel, but biology, you find. And on paper, you could create the same, you know, and even more. Why? Because you don't need growth. You need just in the innovation, you know, invent a molecule and, and it's worth billion. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't require the scale of reaching out to 150,000 customers. You're not supposed to sell. The farmers will sell. You just sell to them, you know, in phase two, you know, a billion dollar asset. Why didn't it happen for Israel on the biotech side is a big question. It's really something that I'm struggling myself to understand. Where did it go wrong? But I have a theory. My theory is this. It's an industry that jump-started and went over too fast. Instead of going through the what where Israel is good about in software, they were good in inventions. They came all the time with things that nobody thought about. They did things differently. That's in biotech, the word discovery. That's where you apply, you know, science. You do it. Israel kind of did not create platform technology companies like Anima. We are the only company like that in Israel. We are like the Boston companies, you know, so many of those platform technology companies, you see them. In Israel, you don't see a company like Anima. In our space, there is no other company like that. Now they are coming with the AI, by the way. You will see from Israel AI companies coming because that's at the software angle applied to drug discovery. But what Israelis did, they took molecules from university and they were trying to go alone to the clinic, you know, with no real understanding of how this is working. All the process, that's the heavy weight lifting. It should have started with drug discovery, and Israel could have been the incubator for building drug discovery, you know, companies. Some companies tried to do that, and again, kind of left the innovation and went all the way to the clinic. For Anima today, by the way, we are a drug discovery stage company. The challenge is now to go to the clinic. But we invested so much in where we are good at, which is the building of a pipeline. Now the next challenge for the company, which investors obviously are looking at our assets and say, can you in a year and something from now be in the clinic? That's the next phase of any company like Anima. This is exactly where we're at right now. If we will do a fundraising, it will be as a crossover because, you know, you need to bring those investors if you want to go public. There is a limit to offer. You can go by bootstrapping, you know, no matter how profitable and growth oriented you are. So that's where we are right now. But I think that Israel, as a great pool of talent, has not managed to build the infrastructure of the venture capital. And it requires more money. It requires even more money. So you need that even more. And the solution is for Israelis maybe to go through the AI angle. You know, actually, they are successful already. You see companies in Israel raising hundreds. 50 million in first round for AI technologies. I, I think that this will actually put Israel on the map with regards to that. In the meantime, we are growing our company, you know, that hybrid model, and we even build chemistry in Israel. So we are, we are kind of doing something that nobody has done before. So far, it worked amazingly well for us. Yeah, Yoki, it seems like you have a tremendous opportunity to perhaps bring some much needed attention to the Israeli life sciences and biotech ecosystem through Anima. Anima is a U.S. company that originated, as I said, in the U.S., in the University of Pennsylvania, where it was yeah. incubated. It's a U.S. company, but all the R&D is in Israel. Yeah. We do business development out of Boston. 
Great. Okay. Well, Yoki, it was a real pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for sharing some of the exciting work that you are pursuing at Anima and, and look forward to tracking your progress and perhaps having you on again in the future. Thank you, Raul. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.